Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, we wanted to welcome you all to Fiction Old and New, and today is March 11th, and we're very, very privileged to have author Steve Yarborough joining us this evening. So what I'm going to do is just give you a brief overview of what we're going to be doing. Um, first, I'm going to read just a short introduction about Steve, and then I have a few questions that I'm going to be asking him about his most recent novel, The Realm of Last Chances. And then Sherry's going to ask him a few questions about prisoners of war. And then we're going to have plenty of time for everybody to either make a comment about one of the books or ask a question. So why don't we get started? Um, Steve Yarborough was born in Indianola, Mississippi. He received both his Bachelor's of Art and his Master's of Art in English from the University of Mississippi and a master's, uh, an MFA in creative writing from the University of Arkansas. He's taught at Virginia Tech, California State University at Fresno, and is now a professor in the Department of Writing, Literature, and Publishing in Emerson College. Steve is the author of nine books, six novels, and three collections of short stories. He's received many awards, including the 2010 Richard Wright Award for Literary Excellence. He's married. His wife is a literary translator, and they have two daughters. Um, tonight, as I mentioned a little earlier, we're going to be discussing two of Steve's books, uh, Prisoners of War, which was a finalist for the 2005 Penn Faulkner Award, was described by Kirkus Reviews, Reviews as philosophically troubling, artistically thrilling, and thoroughly impressive. Um, and Steve's most recent novel is The Realm of Last Chances, which was described in the Washington Post as inspiring the kind of wonder and elation one feels in the hands of a gifted writer. And Kirkus Reviews said, Yarborough has written a deeply intelligent and wildly moving story about the many permutations of love, betrayal, and redemption. So thank you again, Steve, for joining us. It's really it's such a privilege and such an honor to have you here with us. And... Um, I thought I would start out just by asking you if you could talk a little bit about the time period and the settings in, in your novel, The Realm of Last Chances. There were a lot of mentions of different um, things in the news. I remember at one point it was, I think, the day after the younger President Bush was inaugurated for the second term. And there were just a number of different settings in the novel. We, were, we spent some of the time in Kristen's, where she grew up in Pennsylvania, and where she met her first husband in North Carolina. And a lot of the story took place in Boston suburbs, where, um, which actually sounded like a really nice place to live, where uh, you know, there was a real strong community feeling and, and stability, and uh, sometimes more than one generation of a family would be living in a home. So I wonder if you could tell the group a little bit about about those elements of the novel. Sure. And by the way, thanks for having me tonight. Um, it's an honor to, to get to talk to you guys. Um, I moved from California where I'd lived for 21 years to the North Shore of Massachusetts in 2009. And, uh, you know, I'm a native southerner. I never quite... Um, found myself feeling at home in California, even though I, I, we raised our daughters there. It seemed uh, something of a transient culture to me. In the neighborhood where I lived, 
most people had come there from somewhere else. So they, they didn't have real deep roots, which is something um, that I got used to growing up in the South. People had a, you know, a great deal of affinity for the place where they lived. And that was something that I found when I moved to Massachusetts. Um, in the town where my wife and I live, uh, which is very similar to the town in the, in the novel, I think we're the only outsiders for blocks around. And um, I was talking to a guy who's become a friend of mine on the block at one point. Um, he said, uh, I think this is the, the greatest place in the world. And, you know, in, in much of America, when somebody says that, I, I tend to expect it to be followed up by a big patriotic spiel. And so right. I said, you, you mean America? He said, no, I mean our block here. <laughs> um, and uh, he thinks he's a bit of an outsider because he grew up a mile away. <laughs> right. So <laughs> that, that deep-seated affection for the place was something that I found really magical. Um, and it, it made me want to write about a place like that where people knew one another for a long time. And I just started doing a riff in my own mind about what it would be like if you, if you came, as we did, from someplace else um, and, you know, had to, had to sort of make that place your reality. So that was the, the impetus to to start writing about that location. Well, it, it does really sound like, from your, from your book and actually from your description, it really does sound like a wonderful place to, to be. And um, one of the things that I absolutely was riveted by in your story was the whole uh, storyline concerning academic politics. If someone had mm -hmm. said to me, do you want to sit down and, you know, watch a documentary or something about academic politics? I would say, no, I'd, I'd rather do almost anything else. But it was really fascinating. I mean, all of the rules and the regulations and the fact that, um, uh, what was his name, Robert Dilson Alvarez, he plagiarized the material, but it wasn't within the tenure period and the book never got published. And it was, it was really fascinating. It was almost like listening to a courtroom drama, you know, with all the technicalities. And you know he's sort of guilty, but he's, <laughs> you know, he's going to get off. And also the character of Donna. I, I absolutely right. love Donna. I, I really did. She reminded me of people that I've met in real life. Um, she just ha I could picture her sort of sitting there, you know, with her expression on her face. And <laughs> it, was, it was, so I, I just wondered, did this, I, I, I'm guessing that this maybe came out of your years of teaching in universities, maybe some of the things that you've observed in that type of environment? Or? Yeah, um, you know, I lived in California at a time when there were a number of academic scandals. Um, you know, there, there were a couple things not exactly similar that, um, that happened at one of the universities out there. Um, California is, is an area um, of the country in which I think it's always been acceptable to kind of reinvent yourself. And, and we occasionally would have people inventing publications that they didn't have. Um, mm -hmm. They would invent degrees that they didn't have, right? And so, yeah, there's there's been a fair amount of that 
you know, that, that was in the news when I was out there. Um, and then universities can be very legalistic places, um, especially if they're unionized. And I'm, you know, I'm a, a great believer in unions. I always have been. But sometimes I think you get off into, into absolute absurdities. Um, I remember being in a class once as a student when a guy came into the class and he had plagiarized the first chapter of Tim O'Brien's book, Going After Cacciato, which had just won the <laughs> National Book Award. And, you know, when the teacher just said to him, what are you doing? He said, oh, right. well, I retyped it, and that, that turned it into a work of metafiction. Wow. Um, so there, there are a fair number of con artists in almost any profession, and unfortunately academia is not, um, is not immune to them as well. Yeah, no, it was it was really really riveting. I mean, just uh, I was, I, I I mean, to me, Kristen seemed like someone who took her job very seriously, and she did a good job. And it was it was really interesting, actually, that that storyline. Um, there was a part of of the story where I actually was sort of screaming at Kristen, and you, you sometimes I forgot that she was a real person, and it was the part where. Um, Matt sent her an email where he's professing his love for her. And, you know, you sort of want to call her up on the phone and say to her, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, because you could just see it, you know, sort of like watching a car crash or something. You could sort of see mm-hmm. it coming that she's going to do this. And it just seemed like such a bad idea to me. <laughs> and I yeah. wondered, of the, the three men that she had relationships with, um, her first husband and Cal and Matt, who did you think was really the best fit for her? Well, now, you know, that's such a wonderful question. Um, I suppose that I thought that Kristen was someone who uh, could use some stability in her life. Mm-hmm. And I think that on on some level, Cal really provided that. Um, but I think, I guess my real answer to that question would be that at various times in her life, she needed all three of those men. Mm-hmm. And okay. that's not a that's not a an answer um, that I think society would necessarily approve of, and 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 I don't. <laughs> I've been happily married to the same person for, you know, going on 30 years. But Mm -hmm. I have seen people, um, you know, who run into trouble in their lives. And, um, you know, if they're lucky, they they find the person who helps them through it. And I think that to some extent, even though Matt is, um, is a mess in all kinds of ways, uh, I never convinced myself that it was a bad thing that he came into her life right when he did. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I, there was one part of your story that I had a little problems with, and I, I, I didn't really fully understand, and I thought I would ask you about it. Um, sure. I, read the, I hope I understood it. I'm sorry. 
I said, I hope I understand it so that I oh. can answer it for you. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> so I actually read the novel twice, and when I read it the second time, I was kind of looking for what I missed the first time, and I, I guess I missed it the second time, so hopefully you'll, you'll explain it to me now. It concerned um, Cal and what I would call his possibility, I guess, of violence, because I didn't really think of him as somebody who had a tendency towards violence or propensity towards violence, but about halfway through the story, he breaks up the convenience store robbery, and then later on in the story, Kristen said something to the effect that, um, you know, you could just tell with Cal that he had this sort of possibility within him, and I went to my, I said to myself, I didn't know that. <laughs> I said, real. I was thinking, oh, really, Kristen? I, I, I didn't know that. And then at the end of the story, of course, we found out what happened. I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone who hasn't read it, but we found out what happened with his former girlfriend's father. Did it, do you think it came from the example of his father, or is it something else that, that caused this sort of possibility of violence within him? Well, you know, um, I hadn't thought about that specifically until you until you ask it, but here would be my answer. Here's okay. a man that you know, if you put yourself in her shoes, here's the man that you get married to. He told you his name is Cal Stevens. He told you his father was dead. He told you his mother was dead. And right. then suddenly one day he walks over to you when you're eating breakfast and he puts a newspaper down in front of you and says, That's my father He's actually alive. Mm-hmm. Now, that's real spooky, in my yeah. opinion. To no, have been married to this man for however many years, I think it's probably three or four years by that time. <laughs> um, if you look at what he did, he basically killed off his father in terms mm-hmm. of, um, of, you know, giving her the real truth about himself. And so, uh, does she have literal reason for thinking that he's violent? Uh, she's never seen him beat anybody, but I think right. if I found out something like that, it would at least cause me uh, not necessarily to feel quite as safe as I did before with somebody. Um, mm-hmm. So I suppose that would be nice. That's a good answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I think you're right, actually. Um, another thing that you did in the novel, which I really loved, was you brought in mentions of other authors, um, which mm-hmm. was so great. Um, in the beginning of the story, you were talking about um, Milan Kundera, and I was thinking back, I don't know how many years ago, when you remember the unbearable lightness of being, how popular sure. a book that was, yeah. and... Everybody was reading that, and I remember reading some of his books, and I was thinking to myself, you're right, you know, what happened to him, right? <laughs> he must still be yeah. writing books. And you mentioned Larry McMurtry, who we read one of his books in, in our group, and then you brought in author Richard Yates, who actually made an appearance in your story, which was so great. And I know that you've met him, and I wondered if you could just tell the group a little bit about um, what it is that, that you like so much about his writing and what it was like to meet him? Well, I, what I love about Yates' writing is um, the absolute transparency of his prose. 
he never calls attention to what he's doing stylistically. So the the language itself just becomes um, like a clear pane of glass that you that you see right into the characters through. That's what I love so much about his work. Um, as far as meeting age, um the conversation that Matt has with Richard Yates uh, outside the Newberry Steakhouse in Boston is the conversation that I had with him inside the, New- the Newberry oh, Steakhouse. Oh, wow, really? Oh, okay. Um, the line that he said to me, um, and I just, I was traveling up the East Coast. I was a young person trying to be a writer, and um, I found his phone number, and I called him. Really? And, oh, wow. Yeah. And we, I had a mutual friend, Andre DeBuse, um, and Andre had said it's okay to call him. Mm-hmm. And so I was having dinner that night with Andre, and Yates invited himself to, to the dinner. And okay. at some point I, I actually said to him, uh, I love all your books, but I guess maybe my favorite is a good school. And what Yates mm-hmm. actually said was, a good school... Um, is a little music box. And Revolutionary Road was my attempt to write a symphony. And I mm-hmm. took that a little bit when I put it in the novel and had him say Revolutionary Road is an AT, or a good school is an AT. But the thing that struck me about him was what's, what has struck Matt in the novel. Um, he said, I'll never write a better book than Revolutionary Road. And, you know, that was, that was his first book. Um, and I, I've never known another writer. You, you know, you ask almost any writer, what's your best book? And his or her answer will always be, my most recent book. Right. Um, but Yates, Yates looked at his work with cold clarity, um, which I think is, is really rare. Wow, that's really fascinating, actually. <laughs> um, I, I had, actually, I'm going to two more questions, and then you, you'll be all set, Sherry. Um, I, I had, I, like I said, I read your novel twice, and both times it struck me in a certain way, and it's kind of like a theory I have about this novel, and you'll tell me if it makes sense to you at all. So when, when I read it, it reminded me in a lot of ways of the experience of middle age um, because I think what happens a lot of times for people in middle age is they've encountered some sort of a, like a disappointment, whether they have health problems or their career has sort of stalled or their personal relationships have fallen apart. And often people tend to spend a lot of time looking back either to figure out where their life went a little bit off of course or just to remember, you know, when things were better. And we have a lot of that in your story. I mean, we have Kristen and Matt thinking a lot about their first marriages and Kristen thinking a lot about her relationship with Patty. And we have, um, I'm sorry, Cal thinking a lot about his father. But what you did, which I thought was better than that, was you kind of took the focus a little bit away from that and when you brought in the novel Embers, where you were talking about how 
it's in, which I agree with you should have, you know, it's important to have something of joy in your present life. And also when you were talking about Matt in the beginning of the story where he was talking about how he really didn't see a future and how important it is really at any age to, to have a future. So this book reminded me, I, I don't know if it's just me, it might just be where I am in my own life, I guess, but it reminded me a lot of the, of the experience of middle age because you're sort of in the middle of your life and you have the past and you have the future and sometimes, you know, the road is a little bit rocky but you have to sort of keep going and, you know, have sort of hopes for the future. So what do you think? <laughs> Does any of that make sense? Or Yeah, well, I'm, I'm at the same point in my life. Um, I'm 57 now and I was... Uh, what, 53 when I started writing the book. Um, and I think that, that you have to have something to look forward to. I also think that um, every one of us, when we ask ourselves what we add up to, we don't just add up to what we are now. We also add up to what we've been. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, in various ways, all three of those characters were, to some extent, denying their own past. Yes. And I saw the story as, um, as a story that, that hopefully brought those characters into touch with their own past and made them realize and understand that those wonderful moments from the past, they're only gone if you refuse to to live with them every day. And um, especially in the case of Kristen, at least the, the ending of the novel, here's a woman who has dealt with the grief, the grief of losing her husband, the grief of what she discovered about her father, by just deciding not to think about it, not to, not to let it be there, but to turn off the grief it seems to me is to is to deny the moments of joy as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted That's to write true. about 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 somebody who had to um, suffer a little bit to to regain access to to the beauty that had been in her life. Mhm. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, um, the last question I wanted to ask you was. I read an interview with you that you did recently in the Writer Magazine and where right. you were talking in part about your writing process. And I thought it was just really, really fascinating because when I think of a writer, my image is, you know, somebody sitting down writing hundreds, maybe <laughs> thousands of pages, and they bring it into their editor's office and, you know, you have to kind of wheeled it down to, I don't know, 300 pages or whatever, but you don't, you don't write that way. You write in a very different way, and I wondered um, if you could tell the group about your writing process, but also, how did you get to that process? How did that process evolve? Well, I don't, I don't write a lot every day. I usually no more than two or two and a half hours, and Typically, uh, only about the third, first 30 or 40 minutes are spent writing new material, and then I just, I just start rereading it, and I'll read until one thing bothers me, and usually that's about three words in. And I deal with, you know, I deal with whatever that is. Maybe it's a comma that 
I don't think belongs there. Maybe it's a verb that seems too bland to me, and I I keep rereading what I've written that day until I can't find anything else that bothers me, and then I quit. Mm-hmm. And in a novel, when I get to the end of the chapter, I reread the whole chapter, and I do the same thing to it. Um, mm-hmm. it. I didn't always write that way, and I think that I probably started writing like that when my first daughter was born um, because both my wife and I were working. And I had to learn to get really, really focused. Um, and I might only have 45 minutes or an hour to write. Mm-hmm. So I had to be meticulous and methodical. And if I wasted any time on a given day, that might mean I didn't get to work that day. Mm-hmm. So I think that that having little kids in the house and just suddenly realizing that um, most of my time belonged to them, um, it brought a different kind of focus to the to the writing, and you know it started working for me. So I just stuck with that process. Mm-hmm. But I don't know anybody else who writes exactly like that. The Irish writer Colin Tobin did tell me once that that I think his writing process is pretty similar. He said, I don't believe in in doing a big, messy draft and going back and then trying to fix everything. I, I kind of sit down every day and tell myself I'm going to get it right before I quit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, you're all sure. set, Sherry? Uh, yeah. Hi, Steve. First, thanks a lot Hello. for joining. Appreciate it. My um, I have questions about prisoners of war. First, I'd like to say what a great title it was, because in a sense, the whole town were prisoners of war to one degree or another. Um, I wanted to start with a question about the prisoners. Um, I thought the, re- you know, the little details that you had, the fact that they didn't know what watermelon was, was really interesting. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about the research just about the prisoners. And my specific question was, were, were there hierarchies other than rank within the prisoners? Um, you know, hierarchies based on things other than the rank of the prisoner? Yeah, I think there probably were. Um, because for one thing, um, in reality, in most of the prison camps in this country, they didn't mix enlisted men with officers. The officers were typically put in a completely different camp. And so you'd have enlisted men together, and, you know, then you'd have officers off somewhere else. And I think that you know, if you put a hundred, a hundred human beings in a building, um, and let's say none of them know one another, they're going to, you know, ranks will develop. You know, some will become leaders, and the rest will become followers. And so I think that the, you know, that's that's what's happened in that camp. It's not so much a matter of of rank. It's just it's a situation in which the stronger personalities have come to the fore. Yeah, that makes sense um, in any kind of closed environment. Um, Did you have a background in mind for the Polish prisoner, Schultz? And I don't remember his Polish name. Yeah, well, you know what? Um, There was a prisoner of war camp in my hometown in the 1940s. And uh, I guess at some point I had probably heard my father talk about it. But when I was a young person, I, I was like a lot of kids, I was not 
interested in what the old people had to say to me, so I just probably let it go in one ear and out the other. But I'm married to a Polish woman, and the night my father met her for the first time in 1984, he told her a story about um, when he was 17, his father hired a detachment of German prisoners from the camp, and at a certain point, one of the prisoners uh, told my father in broken English, I'm not German, I'm Polish. And my dad had never, you know, until he met my wife, he had never met a Polish person in his life. And he told her the story, and he asked her, could he really have been Polish? And my wife was able to tell him that, yeah, he could have been Polish because if he had a, if he lived in, in certain parts of western Poland when uh, the German war machine overran the country, if he had had um, an ethnic German name, he might have been offered the opportunity uh, to enlist in the armed forces and fight rather than do forced labor. And so that's the background of the story. I, I found it fascinating when I heard him tell her this. And I kind of filed it away, and it was years before I, I tried to write about it. Um, but I just thought it was a, a really interesting tale. Yeah, that, that is interesting, and it makes total sense. There were probably soldiers from other countries under the same circumstances if they were Aryan enough to be in the military. And um, let me just say this. Could I say this real quickly? Um, what I came to find out, unlike what happens in my novel, where I think we believe he is Polish, um, I'm convinced that the guy who told my father he was Polish was not Polish. Because uh -huh. the camp in my hometown was a camp unlike the one in the novel, where these are Wehrmacht guys in my novel. The camp in my hometown uh, consisted of U-boat prisoners. In the mm -hmm. only branch of the German military where they didn't allow any of the Poles to serve for obvious reasons was the U-boat service. Oh, yeah. So I have a feeling huh. that the guy my dad knew was probably lying to him, but I thought it was a better story if he told the truth. <laughs> Well, he must have thought it would get him more sympathy, which it probably yeah. would in that. Right. Um, the other thing that I noticed you ha I'm sorry, you were, you were going to say? No, no, no. No, I, I was finished. Oh, okay. Um, I, I really like the um, little nuances in dialect between the blacks and whites. Like you mentioned that the blacks say, I stay here instead of I live here. And now that I know yeah. you grew up in the South, is that something from your own experience? Yeah, it's not anything that I would have thought a lot about or intellectualized too much over, but I grew up hearing all of those voices. Um, and I suspect that, that to most of the people listening right now, I have a pretty pronounced Southern accent, but it's nothing compared to what it was when I was a child. Um, so the, those voices are just in my head. Um, I hear them every day, even though I haven't, I haven't lived down there for a long, long time. I still remember what people sounded like. That makes sense, yeah. Um, 
this is a speculative question, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that was wondering this. There are a lot of reasons why uh, Jimmy Dale could have killed himself. Is there a reason that you had in mind, or did you want us to draw our own conclusions? Um, I'm not on this firm ground here talking about this novel, because I didn't have a chance to reread it. <laughs> And it's it's been more than ten it's been more than ten years since I wrote it, um, but I think I I probably wanted you to draw your own conclusions. Um, however, if you know anything about um, you know about the rules regarding uh, somebody being the sole support of a family of another of an older family member. One thing I could say about Jimmy Dale being dead is that it could have provided a pretext for his son uh, to be kept out of the war if he wanted to argue that he was now the sole supporter of his mother. Yeah. So as, as to whether or not that's what's going through Jimmy Dale's mind, um, I'm not sure. Um, but I think it's it, it's there as a pretext if somebody wanted to seize on it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, he clearly had some PTSD or what they called shell shock back then, too. Right, And yeah, his wife definitely. was probably having an affair, and uh, so yeah. lots going on. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, the character of Shirley... Um, she was interesting. She didn't seem particularly happy. Do you think she would have been better off having married Alvin, the um, Jimmy Dale's brother? I'm sorry to put you um, on the spot with these particular plot details. No. Um, I think that I probably thought that um, that Alvin might have better, made a better long-term mate for her. But maybe not. I, I don't think you can necessarily say, you know, you can look at two people and think, oh, they're very similar. I bet they'd have a good life together. And sometimes the very similarities, what would undo them in about three days if they ever had to be man and wife. Um, Absolutely. So I, I don't know. I, and, I, and I don't necessarily want to conclude either that, that her life with Jimmy Dale was all bad. I, I don't think it was. No, at the beginning, she kind of fondly reminisces about um, partying with him, having people come over and having music and stuff like that. So she must sure. have had some fun. Yeah, I, I would think so. It was interesting at the end that Elsie decided to go north and presumably pursue a music career. Um, at least that's how I saw it, Him, how his life going once he hit Chicago. Is that kind of what you saw for him? Yeah, I did. And um, he's not based on anybody per se, but I, I will mention that I'm from Indianola, Mississippi, which happens to be the hometown of the great blues guitarist B.B. King. And B.B. left Indianola in 1943, um, going north, first to Memphis, and then on to Chicago. Um, so, you know, there are a number of stories about those men who, for whatever reason, left the 
South at that time, um, there were a lot of good reasons to leave the South if you were African-American. But, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I envision for him. I, I imagine that he, you know, that he makes his way through the world as a musician. I like the way that, the, um, that his experience, he had whites that were not racist bigots as well as the um, man who was. And I think that's, uh, to me, that strikes me as a really realistic portrayal. Not everybody in the South was was bad, toward, treated blacks badly. Um, I, I wondered if you uh, got any kind of response from the African-American community on this book in terms of your portrayal of how blacks were treated then? Well, for a long time, you know, when I'd go visit my hometown, um, I would I would realize just in casual encounters with people that it seemed like um, there were a lot of African American readers there who had a, maybe a higher opinion of me than some of the white readers, um, <laughs> and that that pleased me. I'll be honest about it. Um, you know, I, I felt a lot of affinity for the African American community and. And I think probably I may have spent more time, uh, especially very early in my life, um, I probably spent more time around black people than I did around white people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I'm, like where I live now, I don't live right in Boston. I live in a small town north of Boston, and I love that town, but the town is 95% white, and... I have scarcely a day there when I don't have a moment where I think, now where's everybody else? Because I grew up in a place that's 70% black. And um, that just, you know, that was my reality for so long that um, it, it, I just feel very natural there. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I've read that uh, German POWs, many of them chose to remain in this country after the war. Do you know if that's true? And was that maybe your father's experience with the group down there? I don't think it was my dad's experience, but um, I did a lot of research when I was writing the novel, and I found numerous accounts of, um, of German prisoners who... Uh, either attempted to stay in the country or managed to stay in the country um, after the after the end of the war. Some of them, you know, were were repatriated to Germany and then they came back years later on. Um, by no means a huge percentage of them, but a, but a significant number of them did. So yeah, a lot of that happened. And uh, the other thing that happened that is an element in this novel. Uh, Ron, we just lost him. If you can recapture the uh, control key here, please. Could I surrender to you? (laughs) And he did. And um, the guy went back to Germany and then came back to America and stayed. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, I'm going to back off now, and we are going to have the group ask questions. And the first question we had someone that sent a written question into Michelle, so she'll start with that question. And then we're sure. going to be switching back and forth between 
people that are in the virtual computer room and then us on the phone. So when you get a question, you might want to pause for five seconds before answering. That gives the engineer time to swap back to the phone. Okay. Okay, Michelle, okay. you have your... Yes, I do. Um, Ginny sent in a question, and I'm going to just read it. Her question is, um, what is the backstory on Matt that, this is about the realm of last chances, that led his life in the direction it took? As I read the book, I was not sure the forces that led him to embezzle from the bookstore, drift on his writing, and become a bit remote from his daughters. So that's her question. Um, I think what's happened to him, first of all, is that he's developed a coke habit. And, you know, his, his friend Frankie at one point tells him, you just always crave excitement. You crave stimulation. And I think that's been his fatal flaw. That's how I see him anyway. Um, he's a guy who always is looking for a little bit more excitement from life than it has in it for most people. And I think he's also somebody for whom, to quote Flannery O'Connor, um, the idea of being a writer um, is a lot more interesting than the reality of sitting down and putting words on the page. Um, so I just I see him as a very flawed character in that way. Okay. Do we have any questions from the group? Ron, can you switch back over there? Okay. Any questions? Anyone, please. To ask you actually about the food that was in the book. Um, I was absolutely fascinated by it. I'm going to read, for those of you who haven't read the book yet, I'm going to read some of these foods, and you'll all tell me if you recognize any of it. Um, hoop cheese wafers, homemade potato chips with green turnip dip. This one I had problems with. Fried pickles with blue cheese dressing. Um, pecan cake with praline great glaze. Cheese grits, chiclet, and waffles. I'm guessing these are all foods from your childhood. Is that right, or...? Um, a lot of them are. Um, a lot of them I did not experience when I was a child. Like the first time I had fried pickles was about seven or eight years ago. And if those were around in the South when I was a kid, I didn't know anything about it. Um, okay. But I find them, you know, there are even places in Boston now that serve fried pickles. Um, hoot cheese wafers, yeah, I had those as a kid. Uh, I never did chicken and waffles. I I heard about it, but that mm -hmm. kind of makes my stomach crawl a little bit. Um, They're actually very popular. There's a few southern restaurants by me, and they all serve Sunday brunch chicken and waffles, which I've never had, and I don't understand how they go together. But I've actually heard of that one. <laughs> so, yeah. The fried stuff, I don't... Like, people fry candy canes or not candy, candy bars and stuff and I don't quite understand that so I, I just thought maybe those were those were sort of southern dishes and um, the, the most terrific thing I can imagine that I've heard people are doing is they fry Twinkies that's the one fried Twinkies that I don't understand at all I don't, I don't get that You're, at I'm all I'm with you I'm with you completely yeah. 
And fr- I, I like pickles, but I have to say fried pickles, I don't think so. Um, and I have to say, you know, I, I really liked also the part of the story with Kristen and her friend Patty. And mm-hmm. it, it was so nice, their friendship and just the whole childhood, you know, it just seemed, I don't know, it seemed like a very nice relationship. And that was one of the things that I wondered about Kristen was why she, I mean, she obviously didn't have a sister, but she didn't really seem to have any girlfriends at all. And she seemed very, I don't know, regular to me. And I was surprised that she didn't have any female connections, it didn't seem like. So um, why did you choose to, you know, to create her that way? Um, I think she's, she's a little bit maybe too bookish for her own good as a child. Um, and I guess I hadn't really thought so much about this, but I know my, uh, my older daughter, um, who's turned into a wonderfully well-adjusted young woman, as a child, she had the capacity to just disappear into a book. She would just walk into her room, close the door, and you wouldn't see her for five hours. And then, you know, she was in there and she had read half of Lonesome Dove. Um, Larry McMurtry was her favorite writer for a long time. And I've seen a few kids like that. Um, I mean, we all know it's important to read. Um, but I think sometimes... And I was like that to some extent, um, you know, in my own childhood. I, I just kind of lived with books to the extent of, of shutting out the rest of the world a lot of the time. It's not always healthy. Yeah, uh, this is a very... Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, if anyone has a question, raise your ha- or you know, hit control and raise your hand, so I'll see it and I'll switch back over the re- to the room. Otherwise, Michelle and I'll keep going. Um, I was going to ask, in terms of prisoners of war, did you have any real example, real life examples of someone uh, with PTSD that went off and shot a bunch of prisoners, like the way things ended up in the book? Um, I know of, of a couple of examples in which something similar did happen, yes. Um, and it, it, if you think of, you know, who was typically serving as a guard in the German prisoner camps um, in the U.S., it was typically somebody who had been in the military and had been on the battlefield and had had a, an emotional breakdown and been sent back home. And because uh, there were so many manpower shortages, especially in 1943 and 1944, uh, those guys were, you know, very often given a little bit of psychiatric, or I guess they wouldn't have called it that then. They were given a little bit of, of, um, of counseling and then handed a gun and told to go and be a guard in a German POW camp, and many of them had suffered their breakdowns on the battlefield while confronting German soldiers. So it was a recipe for disaster. Yeah, um, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, the, the, 
the most, um, I guess the most memorable example, and this was, if I recall correctly, uh, maybe a week or two after the, the end of the war in Europe, um, a camp guard at a camp, I believe it was in Park City, Utah, climbed up into the tower, uh, and there was a machine gun mounted up there, and I can't remember how many prisoners he got before they got him out of the tower, but I think it was something like 15 or 17. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he mowed them down. You know, so so it, things like that did happen. Yeah. I think Jill has her hand up if we want to switch to the room. Um. <laughs> I was very interested in the comparison because my experience was exactly opposite from yours. Um, I was raised in California and not in the Central Valley where you were teaching, but in Southern California. And the very first job I had right out of college as a social worker was in North Carolina. And you talk about culture shock. It was huge. Uh, I, I... it would, I'll chalk it up to experience and just say that um, I didn't really appreciate the small town environment where everybody knew everything about everybody else because it was so different from the way I was raised. <clears throat> but I also want to tell you that of the, besides the two books that have been under discussion, the book I read of yours and have liked the very best so far is Safe from the Neighbors. Um, and one of the reasons that I particularly like it, really, is because it's the first time I've read a book that talked about the whole old Miss and James Meredith and that point of view from the point of view of the white man. Most of them have been from the point of view of the black people. And when you told me how old you were, I realized you were really Luke's age at the time that the, that the uh, book began. And I wish you could comment and tell us if you lived during that time period um, and if you knew people who had really been involved in this whole uh, James Meredith situation and how it affected you at the time as a young boy. Well, thank you for the, thank you for bringing up that novel. Um, it's, I suppose probably if I wanted to be honest, that's my favorite of all my novels. Um, I felt I felt very close to that material. I was six years old, <clears throat> like the character, um, the narrator of the novel. I was six years old on the night that um, all of the violence occurred at Ole Miss. And yes, I knew a great many people who were involved in the event. Um, my father, who's still alive, um, my father was a member of the, of the White Citizens Council, as were almost every white, uh, all the white men in my town. Um, it actually started in my hometown, the Citizens Council. And the Citizens Council is often euphemist- euphemistically referred to as the White Collar Clan. Um, they practiced economic repression, 
typically rather than violence. But that night at Ole Miss, the violence, of course, exploded. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's an event that's hung over my life, really, for all of my life. Uh, I remember being terrified that night. Um, I remember at a certain point my grandfather and my father disappearing. Um, I've never asked if they went to, to Oxford that night, like so many people from around the South. I don't think they did, but I'm not sure. Um, there are things I don't know about my relatives, my male relatives, and a lot of white guys from the South who are my age, there are a lot of things they don't know about their male relatives, their older male relatives, and very often it's because they don't want to. They don't ask those questions. Um, so, yeah, that comes out of personal experience uh, to a great extent. And I don't know if you know what happened, at Ole Miss about three weeks ago or not, but there's now a statue of James Meredith in, on the campus, and a couple of guys um, went and hung a noose around the statue's neck. And um, so I think the South has made a lot of racial progress, and Ole Miss, I love Ole Miss, and I think Ole Miss um, has come a long, long way. Um, but, you know, those elements are still around, and not just in the South either. You find them in Boston, you find them in California, you find them everywhere. Looks like Bob has a question. Well, I don't know what to say after that wonderful comment. Jill, thank you for the question, and our wonderful author, thank you for the response. I, I'll give a little sense of levity. I can assure you that chicken and waffles are great. There's a place called Roscoe's all over Southern California. I didn't believe it until I ate it. My reader, uh, who happened to be black, just says, you will love it. And I did. I guess on the other side of what Mr. Yarborough has said, I was listening to the radio when Hank Aaron uh, broke uh, Babe Ruth's record this was against the Dodgers, and the left fielder went back and was clawing at the wall trying to get it. This was in Atlanta, Georgia, and Vin Scully, who I think is the greatest baseball announcer of them all, said 100 years after the Civil War, the close of the Civil War, they're cheering a black man in the heart of the South. Listen. And he let the crowd do it, and tears were in my eyes. So, yeah, we have a ways to go, but we've come a long, long way, too. Yeah, um, I think that um, there are times when I think the South has come farther than a lot of other parts of the country um, because it had to. It had to face. There was there was no way after the civil rights movement that the South could ignore those elements that were that were pervasive there. Whereas in a lot of other parts of the country, you have somebody say, "I'm not racist." And then, you know, you find out that they never have any actions whatsoever with anybody of a different race. They live in a completely white world. And when they're finally put to the test, um, they don't always pass it. 
So I think rice is a it's not a southern it's not a southern dilemma. It's an American dilemma, and uh, to the extent that we deal with it, we'll be a healthy country. To the extent that we don't, we'll have problems. Does anyone else in the room have a question? Ginny, did you want to type something? Because I know you're having problems with the microphone. If you type it, I can read it. I don't know if you had another question. Yeah, Don, we couldn't hear that. Um, sorry, I, don't, I guess it's your microphone again. If you want to type something, Michelle can read it. Well, I'm looking at the screen. I don't see anything yet, but I'll, I'll wait a minute and see if something comes up. I think somebody, yeah, Ginny did. Yes, just wondering how today's college students strike the author as compared to the students of his college days. Um, it's tough to generalize, um, but I'll just say this about the students that I have right now. Um, I teach at Emerson College, and at Emerson College, um, it's a school that's devoted to, to the arts and to communication. Um, I see students that are a lot more worldly than I was. They, they typically have traveled. Um, that's something that, that I really didn't have the, the opportunity to do um, when I was a young person. Um, they aren't necessarily as bookish um, as a lot of us were, and when I say a lot of us, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, people who were studying literature when I did. Um, I think that that... Sometimes they may have shorter attention spans, um, and I think that's probably because of the, you know, the pervasive effect of social media. Um, on the other hand, they seem to me more open to different experiences than I was as an 18 or 19-year-old, um, and I, I think that's very healthy. Um, the students that I'm around right now, um, I enjoy being with, and um, you know, so there's some there's some significant differences, but I don't think people really change that much over 30 or 40 years. I, I think that the the human experiences remain pretty constant from you know from one time period to another. We all love. We all. Uh, we suffer loss in our lives. Uh, we have disappointments, and, and we have, um, you know, happy experiences. Can we let Don try one more time? Ron, if you can switch back. And, Don, if you want to try one more time, I don't know if you've fixed anything. or if I, 
don't see you talking I'll assume not one from California could you describe your book the end of California I really enjoyed your book I think Don is referring to prisoners of war which is the book that he read well first of all thank you Don um, the End of California is a novel um, that's not set in California. <laughs> it's set in Mississippi. But it's about a character from Mississippi um, who, as a young person, dreamed of escaping from what he regarded as a, as a very mundane and boring reality and getting to California, California being, for so many Americans, um, the promised land. I think um, that's certainly what it was for me as a child. And, um, you know, so California represented the American dream for him, and he gets out there and he makes a couple of real bad mistakes and has to go back where he came from. And he finds that um, that those mistakes have a way of following you. So... Um, there's some California settings in that novel. Um, there's some backstory in Fresno and some flashbacks that go back to California. Um, and I, I think the novel also juxtaposes that California reality against a, a Southern reality um, as well. That's my longest novel, um, by the way, and, and it's a novel that also deals with... Um, with young people a lot more than I typically do in my novels. Can we just ask you one final question? Are you working on a novel now, and can you give us a little preview of what it's about at all? You know, for the first time in my life, um, I hate the word sequel. Mm -hmm. And I don't really... I don't, I'm not sure that this qualifies, but I'm writing a novel right now... Um, the working title of it is Hollow Bodies. And uh, some of you, if you're familiar with music, you know that an acoustic guitar, the, the big typical acoustic guitar is called, it's a hollow body because there's nothing inside it. Um, I'm writing a novel in which Cal and Kristen um, are three years later down the road. Oh, wow. Oh, great. And, um, they're not the point of view characters. Uh, Cal now has a job working for someone, and uh, that guy is the, is the point of view character. And um, so I just I, I didn't feel like I was through yet with Cal and Kristen, so I'm, I'm still with them. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's, that's very exciting news. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. We appreciate it. And thank you so much for being here with us. This was really, really fascinating. And it's always so interesting when we read a novel and we actually get to talk to the author. It's, it's really a, a, a rare privilege. So thank you very, very much for, for joining us and answering all our questions. And, and it, was, it was very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you and for Steve. asking me. I enjoyed it, too. Um, thanks, and good luck with your next novel. We'll be watching for it. Thank you so and much, speaking of, speaking of next novels, I wanted to announce to the group that our book for next month is The Good House by Anne Leary. It's L-E-A-R-Y. And the DB number is... Uh, 
two. Wait a minute. No, I don't think it's six two three. No, I think it's more recent than that. Yeah. It's seven six two three two. I put it up in the chat window for people to copy down. It's a window. It's a a book about. a woman who's an alcoholic who kind of writes it in the first person. It's sort of a town drama. There's other characters in the town. It's a fascinating look at an alcoholic from her own perspective in terms of denial. Um, And then there's also other stuff that happens in the town, too, that makes the book interesting. It's sort of a town drama. And it's set in Boston, right, also? Isn't Um, it? No. It's set north of Boston, actually. I'll I'll, I'll tell you that because... um, and Larry is uh, somebody I'm going to be talking to tomorrow. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> now, tell her you had a great experience. I tried to get her for the group, but she was busy. Um, she she uh, is just had a lot going on, so I couldn't well, get through married, to her. She's married to Dennis Leary, so we figured, you know, she's probably busy with all that Hollywood stuff or whatever, so that's so funny. Well, how do you and know she her? Went to Emerson Co- well, she's a graduate of Emerson College. Oh, wow. Uh, That's so funny. In my department, yeah. 